Welcome to this episode of AU Manufacturing Conversations with Brent Bolitsky, featuring one of the companies we're putting forward as part of our quest to identify Australia's 50 most innovative manufacturers. This is the first time we've ever run this campaign, and we absolutely, positively couldn't have gone ahead without the generous help of Bosch Australia Manufacturing Solutions, SMC Corporation Australia, and lead sponsor MYOB. MYOB is a business management platform that brings together key workflows to fit business needs. MYOB has been part of the fabric of doing business in Australia and New Zealand for more than 30 years and integrates manufacturing, inventory management and accounting to help businesses streamline business processes. Thank you very much for joining us here on AU Manufacturing Conversations. Great to meet you. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Pleasure all mine. I will ask you the mandatory first question, and that question is, how did you get here and what do you make? The company's been around for 25 years. It was started actually by my father, Will Smart, 1996, originally focusing on farming equipment and food and agri-machinery. But since then, it's transitioned into medical after a few hard lessons, and we've started focusing into sterilizing and endoscopy departments of health and found that we've got a really nice niche, particularly in endoscopy drawing. My background isn't in medical or in manufacturing. I actually started off in aviation and then moved into the business about five years ago, thinking it would be a short-term thing. And here I am five years later, now general manager of the company, and we're having a great time. It's all about looking blue skies. You know, it's obviously a family business. Are there other members in the business besides you and your old man? Yes. My mother actually does work in the company too, even though they separated 23 years ago it is a quirky setup but it works well for us another fairly obvious but fairly necessary question i had a quick google of your name before we spoke and it shows up a lot of things to do with something you might be sick of talking about and that's your around the world adventure a few years back i'm going to ask if you could tell listeners please about that adventure and if there's anything from it that you apply to helping run a manufacturing business Sure, yeah. That trip you're referring to, we pulled wings around the world. It was a trip we took on in 2016 after two and a half years of planning and fundraising with the goal of becoming the youngest pilot to fly solo around the world. It was a really crazy adventure. Well, it was only 54 days of actual of flying. The two and a half years of preparation certainly taught us a lot. We had a team of eight involved with the project in the preparation and the monitoring, but it, I was the only one allowed in the aircraft according to the rules we were given. It was just an amazing time. It certainly had its challenges. And I guess the, the takeaways that, that I took out of it and now apply to business and other projects I guess the more generic one is, is obviously the, the important role that resilience plays in projects and business. Everything to do with human is going to be difficult one way or another. We're going to face adversity. But if you've got a really strong skill set to overcome that adversity, it certainly makes life a little less complex. And one of the tools that I found was really important during the world flight was having a very strong why, the reason that you do things. And that carries through the business really nicely. And a lot of businesses have values that they stick on the wall, but they don't have a lot of meaning to the business. If you're able to ground values that are the single greatest connector between people, they can overcome any difference in beliefs and backgrounds, experiences and age. If you've got a very strong connecting why, you're able to overcome a lot of those sorts of things and it's also going to contribute greatly to resilience. And so for us, we've got a very strong why. It's something we continue to focus on and develop and invest money in and time. And that's something that carried across really nicely from the, the Wings Around the World adventure when 
we were facing tremendous adversity from you know trying to not to get shot down in certain airspaces and massive storms and all sorts of things like that. When you're grounded in a, in a good reason for doing what you do, that carries through really nicely into business as well. When you're facing really tough challenges economically or within the company itself, if you've got a good reason for doing what you do, it, it gives you the motivation to push through. Right. And what was your why for doing Wings Around the World? And what was, I mean, there, there's probably a billion reasons you could come up with, but what was the sort of the, the main one that made you persist with this very difficult, very time consuming, expensive thing? That's a good question. I've got, I guess, the advantage is one way of looking at it of coming from a, a separated family. As I said, my parents separated when I was younger. I mean, I, I got to learn how to think with an age a little bit older than I was maybe because I spent a lot of time with adults. And so when I was going through school, I would always hear the same excuses that I would often use too. Things like I'm too young, it's too hard, I don't have enough money, people don't believe in me. Reasons not to do things. And I thought, well, are these real limiting factors or are they something maybe we can overcome for a final outcome as young people? And so the why for the trip, and that hasn't changed, I still very firmly believe in this, is that you can really do anything you're willing to put your mind to if you're willing to work hard enough and push through the nose at a young age. And so my why was my mates trying to prove to them that we can continue to aim and, and achieve really high things at a young age. And when things got difficult, I came back to not having an extrinsic motivator, things like I'm doing this for fame or for money, but it came down to I'm doing this for people like my mate Nathan. And so on one of my toughest days, I was five and a half hours into an 11-hour flight and I'd just been slammed with turbulence for the last five hours because the plane had been rocketing around us. Massive amounts of heat. I was flying over the desert in Saudi Arabia in a, in a sandstorm. And I just thought, this sucks. Like, this is not where I want to be at all. And I looked down at my watch and it said it's the 13th of August. And that was my best mate's birthday. And it just came flooding back to me. I was like, this is why I'm doing it. It's not for anything extrinsic that, you know, can come and go. It's for people like Nathan because I believe that we're underselling ourselves and we're believing too much of what the media says. Millennials can't do anything. And as soon as that tied back in, I was like, boom, let's just push through. Five and a half hours ago, I can do that, no worries. And push through into Oman and eventually got the aeroplane down on the ground safely and you know, just reinforced that point. So my why was definitely my mates and the younger generation. Fantastic. And so let's get back to manufacturing. What's the size of Smartline and, and where are your customers? Well, we're not a huge company. We've got 19 staff, but our customers all around the world. We've got a really great partnerships with our distribution companies. So we're quite strong through Asia Pacific, obviously Australia and New Zealand as well. We've recently launched into South Africa and gaining some market traction there as well. And last week, we just signed some contracts. I won't go into too many specifics yet, but with a partner in Europe to look after most of the European countries and China and India. And we've also got a few products starting to go into the United States as well. Your material says you're the global leader in endoscopy, drying and storage, and that's a, you know, a well-defined niche. I ask this question because I've spoken to so many manufacturers and so many people who advise manufacturers who say, look for a niche that's global, that's focused enough to dominate, but meaningful enough to make a healthy business around. How did you end up in your fairly, I wouldn't say weird, but your usual <laughs> little niche? It is a very small niche. It's very specific. And I guess we ended up there when the company started, even as, as recently as sort of seven or eight years ago, we had a very wide breadth of products from theatre trolleys to height adjustable sinks and tables to fixed height benches and sinks. Endoscopy drying was an area we were just starting 10 years ago. And we found that it's hard to do a lot of things well. 
So we narrowed our focus maybe five or four years ago into the things that we were good at and that we had a lot of expertise in. And they were the CSD or sterilizing department products for like height adjustable sinks and tables, their standards back. And then our biggest focus was in endoscopy drying and storage. And we ended up there quite organically. And because our process and innovation has always been to have a very close touch to the market. So we listen to what they want and what they're telling us they need rather than designing products and hoping they fit the market. And we'd been told by one of our partners, who is a thought leader in endoscopy, that there's a new focus on being able to store and dry these endoscopes quickly because they're a niche product. They they can't be steam sterilized. So the drying is a very important part of the cleaning process. And so we started with a very basic plastic box with a little fan and a HEPA filter. That was it. And then from there, we stayed at the forefront of the technology and we sat with the thought leaders as regularly as we could, sometimes only months apart from each discussion going, what's next? What's next? What do you need? How much air should we be putting through? And a lot of this research and capability didn't exist, so we had to do it ourselves. And that's sort of how we ended up in the endoscopy drying space is it was a really critical space. That was not many people in the market at that stage. And we sort of stayed with the thought leaders at the forefront of the technology evolution as it went across to, to be in the position we're in now. And so you mentioned some other products that you've made, tables and whatnot. I think I saw an old article mentioning IV drip stands. Anyway, um, I'm not sure if that's accurate or not. I've misremembered it. It doesn't matter. Back in the day. (laughs) You were doing a lot of things. Now you're only doing a few things. So is that most of your business, endoscopy drying and sterilization? Yeah, that's definitely where our focus is. Endoscopy drying, as we said, it's, it's a niche area which allows us to export a very particular product a long way around the world. Our other areas are in, in the sterilising department of the hard adjustable sinks and tables, and they're really critical, especially in Australia and New Zealand, because we've got a standard that backs those products. So hospitals have to have them for the health and safety of their staff who are sometimes working at the device for up to eight hours a day. So they're really important to have, and that's an area we've been – we were the first in Australia to release these products. And so we've got the benefit of a nice legacy with the brand. So we, we hold quite high market domination there. And so let's get on to innovation, which is our focus today. Do you have a personal and or company definition of innovation? Uh, I'd say it's, it's solving problems in new and unique ways. So with the key focus being on the problem, not on the product. And I think it's very easy, especially as you know, we've got a, a pretty decent research and development team. Most of them are engineers. And so it is obviously the first thought to focus on the product. But recently, we've discovered that it's a lot more efficient if we focus on the problem. So, yeah, we've got a personal method that we follow through. But for us, it's it's starting at the beginning, not starting halfway through the process, which is where we're designing things. Sure. I've seen a lot of beautiful products made that didn't find a market because they probably started the wrong place and you're looking to start at the other place, obviously. Yeah, we're guilty of that. We've definitely designed quite a few products and spent a lot of money and then got to the end stage and realised we can't actually market this or the product isn't needed. So that's kind of what forced us to shift our perspective, I guess. We'd like to take another moment now to acknowledge our sponsors, MYOB, as well as Bosch Australian Manufacturing Solutions and SMC Corporation Australia. There would be no Australia's 50 Most Innovative Manufacturers campaign without them. Be sure to check them each out via the links in the show notes and give them a follow on LinkedIn. Let's turn to the IQ series so we can understand an outcome of your R&D program at SmartLine and give us some context. What does it do that's useful for users in a clinical setting? 
when did it come out and anything else you'd like to share about it? Sure. So to understand the product, it's probably important to give a little bit of context about where it gets used. So endoscopes or the concept of endoscopy is one of the fastest growing areas of health for the simple reason that it's much less invasive than other types of surgery. So previously, if you had a polyp in your stomach or in a bowel, they'd have to cut you open and then cut open the organ and remove the polyp and then sew you back up or you just have to live with it. And so there's a much higher risk of infection. Whereas with endoscopy, they don't have to do any cutting. They can go in one end or the other to get where they need to go. And you can be in and out of the hospital within an afternoon and going home and enjoying your life. So endoscopy's got really great benefits and uses. But the tricky part of endoscopy is that endoscopes, so that's the flexible cameras that go down your throat or the other way, are not able to be steam sterilised. So they're only able to be high-level disinfected with chemicals, but they're not able to be completely sterilised because the, the heat will damage the product. And so when you're only at a high level of disinfection, it, it's still clean and very safe for clinical use, but it's got a very few small remnants of bugs still in there. And if you're left, those bugs are left with moisture and oxygen, then it's able to replicate very fast, and then it could become dangerous for cross-contaminating the next patient. And so drying the product as soon as it comes out of the high-level disinfection washing cycle is really, really important because that stops the replicating of bugs. So that's the reason you have endoscopy drying cabinets. And I guess what sets us apart is all other cabinets on the market run off an assumption where they've tested the product once or a few times and then proven that it dries scopes within a certain number of hours, usually less than three hours. And then they put the product out to market and our products up until recently were the same. And you just run on the assumption going every time all the scopes would dry in less than three hours. There's no way of proving it. And so what we've done with the IQ series is we've introduced a feature called channel monitoring. And that's where we've put individual humidity, pressure or airflow and, and temperature sensors for every one of the endoscope channels of every scope that's stored in our cabinet. And what that does is it proves in real time we actually watch the dehumidification or the drying process of every scope channel. And that way we're able to prove that the scope dried in the right amount of time so it's going to be safe for clinical use. And for the customers and end users, that provides two benefits. One is that obviously the patient is getting a safe product to use. But secondly, for the hospital's perspective, while patient care is their first and foremost focus, the other focus for them is limiting their legal liability. Because if something was to happen, obviously if the hospital's not followed the right process, they're the ones in the firing line. And so with that product, then they were able to prove, go, hey, we saw the scope was dry within a certain amount of time, it was stored correctly, and everything's validated electronically. And that's where the IQ series is dominating at the moment because it's the only product in the world that's able to do that in real time. When did the IQ series come out? We released that. It was early last year, early 2022, or even late 2021. It's about a year and a half old. It's still a relatively fresh product, but it is a building of a legacy product that we had in previous models as well. Now let's go to another thing relevant to this series and let's look at the explanation that you gave, which I really liked in your application of identifying a problem, generating solutions and validating these. Would you like to give us a bit of a walk through some of this? Sure, yeah. This is, is sort of, as I touched on earlier, has been born out of the need for us to have a more efficient research and development department. And as I said, it's, it's easy for engineers to focus on products because that's what they're trained in. But unfortunately, we were spending a bit of time developing products that we weren't really selling. And so we reshifted our focus to be focusing on the problem. So the concept that we have is that we'll identify a problem and then we'll assess that if it is a real problem in the market and then compare that to our company. So, for example, our products are quite high value, but we do them in low volumes. 
We're not talking scalpels where you might go and produce hundreds of thousands of them a day, like the big factories do overseas. We shouldn't design a scalpel because we can't meet that sort of production capacity. It doesn't fit our company profile. Whereas we do low volume, high value products really well that are highly complex and take a long time to build. And so we, we compare against our company model. Is it a high value, low volume product? Does it fit our distribution partners? And then we confirm that it is a real problem that we need to solve in the market. And if it ticks all of those boxes, then we'll move to an investigation stage where we'll come up with several different ideas in the team, but separately. And then we'll come forward and, and compare those ideas to find the best way of getting from where we are now to the desired end state. So how are we going to solve that problem? And some people, you know, for the outcome of drying scopes, it might be a cabinet, it might be another way of rapidly drying scopes and storing them in another environment. We find out the best way that we think we can solve the problem and then we validate that in the market. So we're going to take it to some of our testing partners in hospitals, in our distribution channels, prove that they'll actually want this before we spend any money actually developing the idea. So the goal is by the time we actually get to prototyping and design stage, which is the fun part of research and development, we've now got a product that we're pretty sure should be adopted by the market rather than designing something, spending lots of money and time and then going to the market going, what do you think of this? And so yeah, for us, it's been really critical to have great partners that can help us test our concepts before we start designing them. According to your application, you're spending a healthy amount of revenues on R&D, but the most important thing is always effectiveness. Tell me about how you're measuring R&D efficiency and you're improving it through (laughs) applying innovation to your innovation framework. Everyone listening who's got experience with innovation or research and development knows that it's a very hard thing to measure because we might have six or 60 ideas that we write off and don't develop before we land on the one idea that we do invest a lot of time and money into develop and then go on to sell. And so the question is, those six or 60 ideas, you know, are they a write-off or were they a valuable part of the thinking process that got us to the one idea that's really useful? And so that's why it's fundamentally a very difficult thing to measure. But we measure against two metrics, one being new products to market. So that's our actual research and development. So being able to put out a certain number of new products in, in, in a time period. And then the second part of it is the production engineering element. So the products that we release to market, after they've been released, how can we improve those products for the customers? So revisions to make them better products. And then how can we improve it internally as well so they're more efficient and cheaper for us to make and that we're providing the quality outcomes that we promised we would. Because if we focus on too much of one or the other, if we only focus on putting new products out, but we don't follow up with that after-sales support of going, we're improving this, we know it's a good product, we're continually meeting quality outcomes, then we're going to lose trust very quickly. Whereas if we focus on the other end, we're only looking at our existing product portfolio and how we could make it better, then we're going to fall off the back of the innovation curve very fast. And it's very expensive once we're not at the forefront of the innovation curve anymore, innovation cycle. It's very hard and expensive to get back to the front because you're continually playing catch-up with other companies. And for us, that's the only way we're able to survive is because our competitors, I should probably note that some of our competitors in certain territories are our partners in others. One of our biggest competitors in Australia is our distribution partner for Asia. So the only way we can compete and partner with these companies is by out-innovating them, really. Always being at the forefront of new technology and new concepts because eventually when you have a great idea, other people will start to cotton on and realise that's a good idea too. But it's okay because we're already on to the next one. And then the second part of your question, in applying innovation to our innovation framework, 
The concept of that is that the day we stop learning is the day that we can sort of seal our fate as a company. And we call it the purple chairs within the organization. So we used to be in a different facility other than the one we're in now. It was a lot smaller. It was a lot more rugged. We call it the farm shed. And at the farm shed, there was a purple chair that was out, finished being used in the office, needed to go in the bin, but no one ever moved it. And for years, it sat right at the front door. You had to walk past almost around this purple chair. And it just became so ingrained that everyone just forgot it was there that we were wasting time every day walking around the stupid purple chair. And it was like bright purple. You can't miss it just because it was always what had been done. And the concept being that if we had have moved that chair and changed our thinking, we would have been a lot more efficient as a company, not walking around this chair and it not being in the way. And so the concept is, you know, there's a lot of things that we do just because it's the way we've always done it. There's a lot of purple chairs that lie around all companies. But if you can take a completely fresh perspective, and sometimes that means getting outside expertise to come in and have a look, you'll find that there's usually a lot of purple chairs within the company that you could move and save yourselves a lot of time or find new solutions to problems that exist when you don't have a purple chair in the way. Fantastic. Last question. Is there an issue within manufacturing that isn't getting the attention it deserves? <laughs> There's a few. I'll list two. Firstly, particularly for companies like ours, talent retention or talent acquisition, I guess. We're not in a big city. We're on the Sunshine Coast, north of Brisbane. So we're technically regional. And Sunny Coast, if you ask me, is the best place in the world to live. I love it here. But there's this concept that if you want to be, especially for young engineer graduates or, or even trades graduates as well, you have to move to a city if you want to be in a big innovative company or something, you know, having opportunities to grow and that sort of thing. And it's not true. Like There's so much happening, particularly here on the Sunshine Coast, but in a lot of other regional centres around Australia where there's a lot of cool businesses opening up now. And because of the, the way we can move product and ideas around very fast with technology, you don't have to go to a city anymore. You can have amazing lifestyle in regional centres and, and still work in a cool company. So that's the first one. But I'd say the second and probably more critical from our perspective is that while Australian manufacturing is difficult because we've got high labour costs, high material costs, we do have phenomenal capability, very innovative companies and thinkers in Australia. However, we're hugely dependent on imported goods in a lot of areas, particularly electronics. We recently did a supply chain review with a focus on risk mitigation for some of our imported products looking at our top 10 suppliers and majority of items we could find domestic alternates for we're 90 percent australian supply chain as it is but for our imported goods most we could find a an alternate supply for but within the electronic space it was very very difficult there's no one in australia making small electronic components because it's too hard too expensive but that opens up really big risk for us so if there ever was be it geopolitical or something like the pandemic happening again, we found that there's huge implications to being able to make things here because we're so dependent on what we bring in from overseas. So for us, the only way we can get around that is having huge stockholding in some of these parts, which is expensive, but that de-risks our company. But that might not be possible for other companies. So it'd be nice if there was focus on more of the critical industries and how we're able to, to actually make more here because then we can be a bit more independent and have more options internally. Yeah, there's certainly a limited number of printed circuit board companies here for one and nothing in the way of semiconductor manufacturing on a meaningful scale. But, you know, yes. we get there if we work at it bit by bit and raise the understanding of how important it is, perhaps investment will follow. But who knows? It's for people much more competent than myself to figure out. So luck to them. Anyway, uh, Lockie, it's been delightful to meet you and thanks very much for being with us here on AU Manufacturing Conversations. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.